The New Testament reading is Colossians 1, 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The word of the Lord. So I am uh, positively giddy about this sermon series. Uh, I have finally found a way to kind of wed my um, love of pursuing kind of theological, biblical nerdery information and uh, music and do a sermon series together. And so I've been talking about it a lot and posting about it, and I think we're approaching almost the eye-roll stage at my house where my kids are like, yeah, there he goes again. Um, So I don't know if you are excited about this, but I am, and I think, well, I know I'm going to enjoy it. I think you will as well. It's going to be, however, a little bit non-traditional, particularly this morning, um, because there's some background that we need to talk about. Um, And I'm sure that you guys all come to church to get kind of a historical overview of punk rock music. Um, You won't get the full treatment, but you'll get a little bit of that uh, this morning. And so it's a little bit different than maybe what you would expect of church, and I hope that's a good thing. Uh, So it's a bit of an experiment. So let's pray as we begin. God, I certainly admit that this series comes uh, from my interest and was birthed out of my passions, and, um, and in a sense, all sermon series uh, are to some degree. But I pray that, Lord, what we cover, what we talk about this morning would go beyond that, that it would connect with something that is deeply true about who you are and deeply true about your world and deeply true about us and that we could find a way to, um, uh, to bring all of those different threads together, that we would do so because the gospel does so. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us and that you would guide us and that there may be some interesting trivia and information about the world of music here, but I pray that we would not lose sight of uh, the Jesus who uses songs and uses parables and uses his own life to draw us into your presence. And I pray that you would draw all of us this morning. Amen. Money uh, can cover a multitude of sins, and wealth can keep us from really seeing, from perceiving our world, particularly the suffering of our fellow citizens. We buy more expensive housing and 
It can insulate us from the daily part-of-life violence and the systemic racism and maybe the, the structurally reinforced poverty that exists in the zip code one over from us. And what happens, unfortunately, for many people in the West as we get more affluent, as we uh, choose where to live based upon our peer group and based upon our income, we have an experience of the world that begins to narrow. And at the same time, our vision and experience and friendships narrow, so does our empathy along with our spiritual lives. But some people make it their job, their art, to see, to continue to see. And we give them names of grudging respect, like a renegade or iconoclast or a saint or maybe a missionary if we are familiar with the church world or an activist. We don't necessarily want to be them, but we respect them and we need them. Others we assign terms of kind of derision or dismissal and disparagement. They're a bleeding heart. They're a radical. They're a snowflake. They're politically correct. They're a social justice warrior. Or they're a punk. And punks have a talent for seeing. Punks perceive things about the world that we need to see. They see the world differently. They tell us about this underside of our experience, the world that we drive around in order to avoid. They tell us about the numbing effects of the marketplace and the values that are embodied there that appear to us to be benign and therefore are all that more destructive. They tell us sometimes, unfortunately, about a church that's complicit in the harm of the vulnerable. So we need punks. We need punk music to see, or at least a genre that has the same sensibilities. So what is, what is a punk besides what you call other people's children when they are annoying? Besides the Mohawk and the Doc Martens, what is a punk? And for our purposes, what is punk music? Well, it's a genre of music that's loud and it's rowdy and it's thrashy and it's simple. In fact, some people in the punk industry and in bands have actually bragged that they don't know how to play their instruments very well, and yet they sell records. They have this DIY ethic and a very anti-establishment growl that comes through in their music. Now, punk emerged almost simultaneously on both sides of the Atlantic. There's a debate that we could have. I'm sure you would be interested in, in that if I did 15 minutes up here. But I think it's fair to say that what we now call punk music grew at least the fastest and the loudest and the most profane in Britain at the very end of the 1970s with bands like The Clash and The Sex Pistols and The Damned. But if these bands and this idea of punk grew out of a very British type of angst, its spiritual forebears, its spiritual antecedents were very American. 
the musical rebellion that set itself at the end of sort of the disco and the dad rock age of the late 70s, the Eagles, the music that set itself against that sort of big industry, very polished musical form was also set itself in rebellion against the status quo and in Britain against this status quo where the power at the top was protected, people at the top, white people particularly. And it worked well for them, but not for large segments of society. And this music, which I said was arguably found its spiritual roots in the American experience, was a creative retread of the anti-war and anti-establishment civil rights songs of the 1960s, which themselves were rooted in something much deeper in the earlier pro-labor folk movement. You remember Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, as well as the African-American slave spirituals, the songs of lament that they would sing as they found themselves in the cotton fields of the American South. And the thread that runs through all of these songs and all of these artists is that they had a way of saying there's something wrong about our world. And I think music says it best. There's something wrong about our world, and you need to hear it. You need to hear my experience, and I'm going to sing it. And their songs, the very earliest, the Negro spirituals as we call them, these hymns, they were born out of the horrendous, dysfunctional slave economy. And like the, the ancient psalmist, many of the words they would sing would be ancient psalms. They sang of a Messiah in which they found hope, that there was a reason to sing of a coming king, the psalmist singing about the coming king, the slave singing about the king who came in the form of Jesus, who spoke up as and for the bullied, who took up the cause of the oppressed and the forgotten and the powerless. And we're doing this series because while it may be obvious to hear the voice of Jesus in those old hymns and those psalms, I hear him in punk. I hear the tears of Jesus in punk, and I hear the anger of Jesus in punk. And I think you will too. I started thinking about this and writing in my journal notes that would form the background of this series a few months ago when we were hearing these just horrific stories of children being separated from their parents at the border as a matter of policy. And this was just 24 hours news cycle, and you couldn't escape it, not that you wanted to, but you knew it would end. Even if the children weren't reconnected, you knew that at some point in uh, the future, in a few days likely, that the news cycle would change. Now, I have no interest in revisiting that and certainly not weighing in on one side of the immigration debate. Because both sides, as it is the case with most policy issues, most political issues, talked past one another and villainized 
each other in ways that are completely unhealthy and completely unhelpful to actually solving the problem. But what I noticed and what I wanted to think about here is not policy solutions and not kind of arbitrating who was right and who was wrong. But what I want us to think about is the language and the rhetoric that so many Christians used in this debate. The rhetoric that gave almost unquestionable loyalty to those in power and to words that seemed to kind of minimize and relativize all other words, words like law and order and obedience. And why was this at the very top of our kind of Christian sentiment, our Christian theology, that these words kind of rose up as the summation of how Jesus would respond and how Christians should respond to this humanitarian crisis? Why is this? And our attorney general answered the question for us. And he gave biblical warrant, supposedly, to how the law was being applied and why the law existed in the first place. Now, in his defense, he's the attorney general, and so he's the the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, so he has a job to do. And oh, by the way, he is um, a family friend, and uh, I went to college and high school with his daughter, and she was, I was very close with her, so I need to tread very lightly here, very carefully. But the problem I'm pointing out here is, is not his policy-setting um, decisions, not his tactics necessarily as AG, but that he's not very good at the Bible. Um, and those of you that were in the class this morning talked about this specific verse, and it was actually kind of serendipitous. Scott and I didn't talk about this beforehand. We should have probably. Um, so I hope I'm not con- uh, contradicting anything he says uh, or said earlier. But his interpretation of Romans 13 and our submission to authorities and an almost unquestioned loyalty went almost unquestioned within most of American Christianity. And it seems so strange to me for people whose faith started as an outlaw religion, as an illicit religion, for people who ostensibly follow Jesus, who is executed as a criminal, as an enemy of the state, to almost unreflectively side with those in power. And again, I'm not weighing in on who was right. I'm talking about the instinct. What do we automatically go to? What is our first position, our first priority as believers? The almost unreflective way that we sided with those in power, even if it meant increasing human suffering, it seems quite incongruous to me and quite odd So maybe this non-traditional sermon series is really good for our cultural moment. And maybe punk can help us see our world more clearly and navigate our world better as Christians. Maybe these secular musicians can help us read our Bibles better, can help us see things and themes about the Scripture that we wouldn't see otherwise. And so we're taking a few weeks with utmost reverence 
to consider Jesus as sort of a proto-punk, sort of the er-punk, if you will. Now, let me transition quickly here and briefly to Colossians because we read that and we want to take Scripture seriously, and I want to dive in here a little bit because what is going on in Colossians is just remarkable. And Paul is quoting here what most people think to be an ancient song. And it's a very punk song. It has this very beautiful, esoteric, theological language, but really it's very punk. He's unmasking here the status quo of the world that the Colossian church lives in. And he's subverting the supposedly benign dictatorship of Caesar and the Roman Empire. And he's saying that the emperor has no clothes because here is ultimate reality. And there's something that you need to see about this world in order to live in it rightly. It's a very punk way of communication. And like a good poet, he imagines a new world, one that is real but that isn't experienced in the daily lives fully yet. Now, the imagery of the Roman Empire, if you were to walk around it in those days, especially of Caesar, was everywhere in Roman life, in the market, in the city square, in the theater, in the temples, in the coinage. You would see images of Caesar everywhere. And sure, they were a reminder of who was in control, who had the sword, who had the army. And so don't get out of line. But more than that, they were proclaiming a mythology of the Roman Empire. That the empire and that Caesar was the source of peace and of prosperity and of redemption, of rescue from your everyday lives. And Caesar was described not just in royal political terms, but in divine terms. He and only he could secure the promises of empire. And along comes Paul with this ancient song that he sends on its way without any care, apparently, that it could be taken and read in the halls of power. And he sends this seditious letter. And it says, no, in fact, Jesus is royal, and Jesus is divine. And He's the song that the church has to be singing. Because why? Because He is the true image of God. He's the real image of peace. And I'm sure that the church thought, well, great, thanks, Paul, because now we're in trouble. Now the word is out because his letter, friends, most of his letters are more than just theological treatises. They are an act of treason. They're an act of law-breaking. And he is calling the church in ways that may not be politically revolutionary, but he's calling them to live in a very countercultural way that would get them in trouble and likely, possibly, get them and killed, get them killed. And he's saying, do not put your trust in this Pax Romana, but place your hope in the proclamation of this new king, of Jesus who comes as the image of God. 
that Jesus was an insurrectionist image, clearly in the Roman Empire. But I guess our task this morning, our task every morning, is to ask, well, what about us? How does this apply to us? How is Jesus' message insurrectionist today? Or have we kind of minimized it? Have we truncated it? Have we married it to a vision of the world, a political way of life that is fairly benign and fairly safe? Now, parents, if you want to be really horrified by what's going on in your child's mind and come to think of it, I don't know why you would, but if this is your interest uh, in what's going into your child's fragile little brain that you have no control over, go online and they have these little tests that you can take uh, to get your child to identify how many corporate logos they can, they can uh, identify and connect to a certain brand. And I did this um, a number of years ago, and my older boys were, I guess, around six or eight. And, of course, it was for a sermon illustration. Uh, that's how I used my children's antics all the time. Um, I have to pay them, by the way, so I guess I'm on the hook uh, But I was astonished at age six and eight how many corporate logos they knew, and they knew what these companies did. And statisticians tell us that we receive, uh, we digest, ingest that rather, between five and 10,000 images of corporate logos and advertising every single day. And remember the the coinage with Caesar on it, the images in the theater, the images in the marketplace. These images are selling products, of course. But in the same way, those images put Caesar at the top and tied a mythology to him. These corporate logos, these products, these images are connecting us to something that is much deeper, this mythology of peace and prosperity and security. And what are they telling us? And I'm circling here back to punk. What are they telling us? They're telling us that something is wrong. But it's a very diminishing, dehumanizing message. Because what they're telling us is that something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with your life that their products can solve. And I don't want to bag on people who are in advertising. I know that's a big industry here. But people who are in in advertising say these very same things about their own industry. But unrestrained materialism was a constant uh, target of punk rock. Not so much the bare ownership of things, not so much just the products itself, themselves, but the stories that these products were connected to, the mythology that the products sold to us in order for us to be compelled to buy them. And if you're interested, um, The Clash, Patti Smith, Fugazi, these are some of the bands and artists that do this well. And so we're going to check back on them later. So if you want to add them to your Spotify list in the coming weeks, Now, how many pastors give you punk rock to listen to as homework for the sermon series? But you can go and get a taste of kind of where we're going 
And if you're like rocking out at your desk and the boss comes in, you can say, well, my pastor told me to do this. And you can claim like religious, you know, persecution or something. But these advertisers know that you will attach your money to their product only so much as they can get you to attach your soul to the idea that the product represents. And often it's a story of you being alone and powerless and ordinary. One commercial stands out for me, and it's uh, a commercial about body wash. Um, And the camera makes sure that we know that this gentleman, uh, a fine-looking chap, in the shower, they only show his head um, in the shower, but they make sure that we see the kind of body wash that he is using in the morning before an apparently really critical meeting, a board meeting. And he leaves and goes right from the shower into this meeting, which is funny because that's generally what I do. That's my practice. I'm sure it's yours. You step right out of the shower in a towel, no less. He walks into the board meeting in this towel. And this is a grown man with about as much body hair as a newborn baby. And what happens is because he uses this body wash is that this room full of stunning women stop what they're doing and take notice of him. And they begin to look over their glasses at him and smile and flirt with him. And think about how clean he is and how good he smells. Now, that's some powerful body wash. And what punk does is it it calls BS on that. Not just that there's no body wash that's that's that good, but by poking holes in the assumption that happiness comes through power over other people's ideas about us, that happiness comes through social domination, through total confidence, total poise in every situation, with delicious-smelling underarms, of course. And what punk imagines is a world where those values don't enslave us, that we're not given wholly over to them so that we buy incessantly, where self-actualization isn't done through purchasing. And Paul imagines, and I'm about to land this plane, so be patient with me. A few moments more. It's a little bit longer than normal. Paul imagines a similar world where we are not captive to images that enslave us. But he gives us another image, another image to live by, and this is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, for in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And he's talking about what lies behind what we see. What is true reality? What is going on in the messaging behind what we see? All things, the things that we touch and the things that we can't yet see, have been created through him and for him. But the world is created for him. Everything was created. All the stuff, everything that we interact with was made by him and for him. What a radical claim. What an insurrectionist claim. Anything that has, its, has a beginning, 
has its beginning in Jesus. And the Son is the image of the invisible God. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is the embodiment of unseen reality. That He brings the character of God and the purposes of God to earth in bodily form. That when you see Jesus, you see what the world is really about and where ultimate reality is heading to. For God, verse 19, was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. You see, friends, Jesus is presented here not as just a guru, not as a teacher, not just a reflection of God, but as God embodied, as God Himself, as the rightful King who rules over all things, even Caesar, and even the powerful Roman Empire. And He rules over, yes, all of our lives. And maybe you're thinking here, well, that's kind of presumptive, that's kind of narrow. But that's exactly what Caesar thought. That's exactly what the religious authorities thought, because he's a threat. He's a rival. He doesn't fit within the pantheon of Roman gods. That's what they thought. But friends, what did the poor think? What did the socially marginalized think? What did the sexually exploited think? Did they think Jesus' announcement of His kingship to be narrow, narrow-minded, presumptive? Not at all. They flocked to Him. They found in Him liberation. You see, those who lived in the halls of power found Him narrow and rejected Him. Those who lived in the dangerous parts of town flocked to Him and loved Him and couldn't get enough of them. Because, friends, ultimately what Jesus, what is said about Jesus is that He is God. He is Creator. He is supreme. He is Lord. All of these big, totalizing words, but He's also dead. He's also all of those things on a cross, and that changes everything. He takes his seat not in the halls of power, not with a sword, but outside the city where the rebels, where the threats to empire, where the punks are taken to be executed. Jesus doesn't come in to lay down the law and to tell us what to do, but he comes to die in our place, to take on our pain and take on our shame, to take on our hopes, to take on our sin, and to lift those who are at the bottom, to lift them up from the bottom. And that's why we're talking about this punk God, that we need to see the punk aspects of the gospel, the punk aspects of the Bible, in order to live into our world most fully in this cultural moment. So I hope you'll come back and I hope you'll see this. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as this totalizing image, but yet an image that doesn't enslave us, but as we read earlier, comes to serve us, that He takes on the form of a servant. And Jesus, thank You that in all of our ugliness and in all of our shame and in all the ways that we walk away from You, 
that we misunderstand and decontextualize in wrong ways your gospel and your words into our world, that you stand by us and you embrace us. And I pray that that would give us cause to walk into our world with faithfulness and with hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.